Section 21 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. J. Frank. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 1. Exploration of the World by Jules Verne. First Part, Chapter 8, Part 2a. On the 9th of March, 1500, a fleet of thirteen vessels left Rastello under the command of Pedro Alvarez Cabral. On board, as a volunteer, was Luis de Camoens, who, in his poem The Luciad, was to render illustrious the valour and adventurous spirit of his countrymen. But little is known of Cabral, and nothing of the reason which had gained him the command of this important expedition. Cabral belonged to one of the most illustrious families in Portugal, and his father, Fernando Cabral, lord of Zurara da Beira, was alcalde Moor of Belmonte. Pedro Alvarez Cabral had married Isabel de Castro, first lady-in-waiting to the Infanta Doña Maria, daughter of John III. If it be asked whether Cabral had made himself famous by some important maritime discovery, we answer there is no reason to think so, for in that case the historians would have recorded it. But it is difficult to believe that he owed to court favor alone the command of an expedition in which such men as Bartholomew Diaz, Nicolas Coelho, the companion of Gama, and Sancho de Tovar sailed under his orders. Why had not this mission been confided to Gama, who had been at home for six months, and whose knowledge of the countries to be visited, and of the manners of their inhabitants, seemed to point him out as the fittest man for the service? Had he not yet recovered from the fatigues of his first voyage? Or had his grief for the loss of a brother who had died almost within sight of the coasts of Portugal so deeply affected him that he desired to remain in retirement? May it not rather have been that King Emmanuel was jealous of the fame of Gama, and did not wish to give him the opportunity of increasing his renown? These are problems which perhaps history may be forever unable to solve. It is easy to believe in the realization of those things which we ardently desire. Emmanuel imagined that the Samorin of Calicut would not object to the establishment of Portuguese shops and factories in his country, and Cabral, the bearer of presents of such magnificence as to obliterate the memory of the shabbiness of those offered by Gama, received orders to obtain from the Samorin an interdict, forbidding any more to carry on trade in his capital. The new Capitam Moor was in the first place to visit Melinda, to offer rich presents to its king, and to restore to him the Moor who had come to Portugal with Gama. Sixteen friars were sent out on board the fleet, charged to carry the knowledge of the gospel to the distant countries of Asia. The fleet had sailed for thirteen days, and had passed the Cape de Verde Islands, 
when it was discovered that one of the ships under the command of Vasco da Taide was no longer in company. The rest of the ships lay too for some time to await her, but in vain, and the twelve vessels then continued their navigation upon the open sea, and not, as had been the manner hitherto, steering simply from cape to cape along the shores of Africa. Cabral hoped by this means to avoid the calms in the Gulf of Guinea, which had proved so great a cause of delay to the preceding expeditions. Perhaps even the Capitan Moor, who must, in common with the rest of his countrymen, have been acquainted with the discoveries of Christopher Columbus, may have had the secret hope, by keeping to the west, of arriving at some region unvisited by the great navigator. The fact remains, whether it is to be accounted for by a storm or by some secret design, that the fleet was out of the right way for doubling the Cape of Good Hope, when on the 22nd of April a high mountain was seen, and soon afterwards a long stretch of coast which received the name of Vera Cruz, changed afterwards to that of Santa Cruz. This was Brazil and the point where now stands Porto Seguro. On the 28th, after a skilful reconnaissance of the coasts had been made by Coelho, the Portuguese sailors landed upon the American shores, and became aware of a delicious mildness of temperature, with a luxuriance of vegetation greatly exceeding anything which they had seen on the coasts of Africa or of Malabar. The natives formed themselves in groups around the sailors, without showing the least sign of fear. They were almost naked, and bore upon the wrist a tame paroquet, after the fashion in which the gentlemen of Europe carry their hawks or their gerfalcons. On Easter Sunday, the 26th of April, a solemn mass was celebrated on the shore in sight of the Indians, whose silence and attitude of respect excited the admiration of the Portuguese. On the 1st of May, a large cross and Pedral were erected on the shore, and Cabral formally took possession of the country in the name of the King of Portugal. His first care, after this formality was accomplished, was to dispatch Gaspar de Lemos to Lisbon to announce the discovery of this rich and fertile country. Lemos took with him the narrative of the expedition, written by Pedro Vaz de Camina, and an important astronomical document, the work of Master Joao, in which was doubtless stated the exact situation of the new conquest. Before setting out for Asia, Cabral put on land two criminals, whom he ordered to ascertain the resources and riches of the country, as well as the manners and customs of the inhabitants. These wise and far-sighted measures speak much for Cabral's prudence and sagacity. It was the 2nd of May when the fleet lost sight of Brazil. All on board, rejoicing over this happy commencement of the voyage, believed in the prospect of an easy and rapid success, when the appearance of a brilliant comet on eight consecutive days struck the ignorant and simple minds of the sailors with terror. They considered it must be a bad omen. And for this once, events appeared to justify superstition. A fearful storm arose. Waves mountains high broke over the ships, whilst the wind blew furiously and rain fell without ceasing. 
when the sun at length succeeded in piercing the thick curtain of clouds which almost entirely intercepted his rays a horrible scene was disclosed the water looked thick and black large patches of a livid white color flecked the foaming crested waves while during the night phosphorescent lights streaking the immense plain of water marked out the course of the ships with a train of fire for two-and-twenty days without truce or mercy the portuguese ships were battered by the furious elements the terrified sailors were utterly prostrate they vainly exhausted their prayers and vows and obeyed the orders of their officers only from the force of habit from the first day they had given up any hope of their lives being spared and only awaited the moment when they should all be submerged when light at length returned and the billows became calm each crew thinking themselves to be perhaps the sole survivors looked eagerly over the sea in search of their companions three ships met together again with a joy which the sad reality soon abated eight vessels were missing four had been engulfed by a gigantic waterspout during the last days of the storm one of these had been commanded by bartholomew diaz the discoverer of the cape of good hope he had been drowned by these murderous waves the defenders according to camoens of the empire of the east against the nations of the west who had for so many centuries coveted her marvellous riches during this long series of storms the cape had been doubled and the fleet was approaching the coast of africa on the twentieth of july mozambique was signalled the moors of this place showed a more agreeable disposition than they had done when gama was there and furnished the portuguese with two pilots who conducted them to quiloa an island famed for the trade in gold dust which was carried on with sofala there cabral found two of the missing ships which had been driven to this island by the wind a plot was on foot in Kiloa for a wholesale massacre of the Europeans, but this was frustrated by a prompt departure from the island, and the ships arrived at Melinda without any untoward incident. The stay of the fleet in this port was the occasion of fetes and rejoicing without number, and soon revictualled, repaired, and furnished with excellent pilots, the Portuguese vessels sailed for Calicut, where they arrived on the 13th of December, 1500. This time, thanks to the power of their arms as well as to the richness of the presents offered to the Samarine, the reception was different, and the versatile prince agreed to all the demands of Cabral, namely, a monopoly of the trade in aromatics and spicery, and the right of seizure upon all vessels which should infringe this privilege. For some time the Moors dissembled their resentment, but when they had succeeded in thoroughly exasperating the population against the foreigners, they rushed at a given signal into the factory which was under the direction of Ayer Correa, and massacred fifty of the Portuguese, whom they surprised in it. Vengeance for this outrage was not slow. Ten boats moored in the port were taken, pillaged, and burnt before the eyes of the Hindus, who were powerless to render opposition. Afterwards the town was bombarded and was half buried under its ruins. When this affair was concluded, Cabral, continuing the exploration of the Malabar coast, 
arrived at Cochin, where the Raja, a vassal of the Samarine, hastened to conclude an alliance with the Portuguese, eagerly seizing this opportunity to declare himself independent. Although by this time his fleet was richly laden, Cabral made a visit to Cananor, where he entered into a treaty with the Raja of the country. Then, being impatient to return home, he set sail for Europe. While coasting along that shore of Africa, which is washed by the Indian Ocean, he discovered Sofala, a place which had escaped the observation of Gama. On the 13th of July, 1501, Cabral arrived at Lisbon, where he had the joy of finding the two remaining ships which he had imagined to be lost. It is pleasant to believe that he received the welcome merited by the important results obtained in this memorable expedition although contemporary historians are silent upon the incidents of his life after his return recent research has been rewarded by the discovery of his tomb at santarem and m ferdinand denis has happily proved that like vasco da gama he received the title of dom as a reward for his glorious deeds whilst he was returning to europe Alvarez Cabral might have encountered a fleet of four caravels under the command of Jao de Nova, which King Emmanuel had dispatched to give fresh vigor to the commercial relations which Cabral had been charged to establish in the Indies. This new expedition doubled the Cape of Good Hope without misadventure, discovered between Mozambique and Kiloa an unknown island, which was named after the commander of the fleet, and arrived at Melinda, where de Nova was informed of the events which had taken place at Calicut. He felt that he had not forces at his disposal sufficient to justify him in going to punish the Samarine, and not wishing to endanger the prestige of Portuguese arms by the risk of a reverse, he steered for Cochin and Cananor, of which the kings, although tributaries of the Samarine, had entered into alliance with Alvarez Cabral. Danova had already taken on board one thousand hundredweights of pepper, fifty of ginger, and four hundred fifty of cinnamon, when he received warning that a considerable fleet coming apparently from Calicut was advancing with hostile intentions. If he had hitherto been more concerned with trade than with war, he did not the less in these critical circumstances display a bold and courageous spirit worthy of his predecessors. He accepted the combat, notwithstanding the apparent superiority of the Hindus, and partly by the skilful arrangements which he made, partly by the power of his guns, he managed to disperse, to take, or to sink the hostile vessels. Perhaps de Nova ought to have profited by the terror which his victory had spread along the coast, and the temporary exhaustion of the Moorish resources, to strike a great blow by the taking of Calicut. But we are too far removed in time from the events, and know too little of their details, to appreciate with impartiality the reasons which induced the Admiral to return immediately to Europe. It was during this latter part of his voyage that Nova discovered the small island of St. Helena in the midst of the Atlantic. A curious story attaches to this discovery. A certain Fernando Lopez had followed Gama to the Indies. This man, wishing to marry a Hindu, 
was forced for this purpose to renounce Christianity and become a Mohammedan. Upon Nova's visit, having had enough either of his wife or of her religion, he begged to be taken back to his country, and returned to his old creed. Upon arriving at St. Helena, Lopez, in obedience to a sudden idea, which he regarded as an inspiration from on high, requested to be landed there, in order, as he said, to expiate his detestable apostasy, and to atone for it by his devotion to humanity. His will appeared so fixed that de Nova was forced to consent, and he left him there, having given him at his request various seeds of fruits and vegetables. It must be added that this singular hermit worked for four years at the clearing and planting of the island with such success that ships were soon able to call there to revictual during their long passage from Europe to the Cape of Good Hope. The successive expeditions of Gama, Cabral, and de Nova had conclusively proved that an uninterrupted commerce must not be reckoned upon, nor a continued exchange of merchandise with the population of the Malabar coast, who, while their own independence and liberty were respected, had each time leagued together against the Portuguese. That trade with Europeans which they so persistently refused must be forced upon them, and for that purpose permanent military establishments must be formed, capable of overawing the malcontents, and even in case of necessity of taking possession of the country. But to whom should such an important mission be entrusted? The choice could scarcely be doubtful, and Vasco da Gama was unanimously chosen to take the command of the powerful armament which was in preparation. Vasco had ten ships under his own immediate command, while his second brother Stephen de Gama and his cousin Vincent Sodres had each five ships under his orders, but they were both to recognize Vasco da Gama as their chief. The ceremonies which preceded the departure of the fleet from Lisbon were of a particularly grave and solemn character. King Emmanuel, followed by the whole court, repaired to the cathedral in the midst of an enormous crowd, and there called down blessings from heaven upon this expedition, partly religious, partly military, while the archbishop blessed the banner which was entrusted to Gama. The admiral's first care was to visit Sofala and Mozambique, towns of which he had had reason to complain in the course of his first voyage. Being anxious to establish harbors for refuge, and revictualling of ships, he established their merchants' offices, and laid the foundations of forts. He also levied a heavy tribute upon the sheikh of Kiloa, and then sailed for the coast of Hindostan. When Gama had arrived off Calicut, he perceived on the 3rd of October a vessel of large tonnage, which appeared to him to be richly laden. It was the Mary Eye, bringing back from Mecca a great number of pilgrims belonging to all countries of Asia. Gama attacked the ship without provocation, captured her, and put to death more than three hundred men who were on board. Twenty children alone were saved and taken to Lisbon, where they were baptized and entered the army of Portugal. This frightful massacre, besides being quite in accordance with the ideas of the period, 
was calculated, according to Gama, to strike terror into the Hindu mind. It did nothing of the sort. This hateful and useless cruelty has left a stain of blood upon the hitherto pure fame of the admiral. As soon as he arrived at Kananur, Gama obtained an audience of the Rajah, who authorized him to establish a counting-house and to build a fort. At the same time a treaty of alliance, offensive and defensive, was concluded. After setting the laborers to work and installing his agent, the admiral set sail for Calicut, where he intended to summon the Samorine to a reckoning for his disloyalty, as well as for the murder of the Portuguese who had been surprised in the factory. Although the Rajah of Calicut had been informed of the arrival in the Indies of his formidable enemies, he had taken no military precautions, and thus, when Gama presented himself before the town, he was able to seize some vessels anchored in the port and to take a hundred prisoners without encountering any resistance. Afterwards he granted the Samarine a respite of four days, in which to make atonement to the Portuguese for the murder of Correa, and to refund the value of the merchandise which had been stolen on that occasion. The time specified had scarcely elapsed, when the bodies of fifty of the prisoners were strung up at the yard-arms of the vessels, where they remained exposed to the view of the town during the whole day. In the evening the feet and hands of these expiatory victims were cut off and taken on shore, with a letter from the admiral declaring that his vengeance would not be limited to this execution. Accordingly, under cover of the night, the broadsides of the vessels were brought to bear upon the town, which was bombarded for the space of three days. It will never be known what was the exact number of the slain, but it must have been considerable. Without reckoning those killed by the fire of the cannon and the muskets, a great number of Hindus were buried beneath the ruins of the buildings, or perished in the conflagration, which destroyed a portion of the town of Calicut. The Rajah had been one of the first to take flight, and fortunate was it for him that he had done so, for his palace was amongst the buildings which were demolished. At length, satisfied with having transformed this heretofore rich and populous city into a heap of ruins, and considering his vengeance satiated, and the lesson so taught would be profitable, Gama set sail for Cochin, leaving behind him Vincent Sodres with several ships to continue the blockade. Triampara, the sovereign of Cochin, informed the admiral that he had been eagerly solicited by the Samarine to take advantage of the confidence reposed in him by the Portuguese, to surprise and seize them, in consequence of which intelligence, and to reward the integrity of the king whose loyalty had exposed him to the enmity of the Rajah of Calicut, Gama, when starting for Lisbon with a valuable cargo, left with Triampara ships sufficient to enable him to await in safety the arrival of another squadron. During Gama's return voyage the only noteworthy incident that occurred was the defeat of another Malabar fleet. The admiral arrived in Europe on the 20th of December, 1503. Once more the eminent services rendered by this great man went unrecognized, 
or rather they were not appreciated as they deserved. Gama, who had just laid the foundations of the colonial empire of Portugal and India, remained for one and twenty years without employment, and it was only through the intercession of the Duke of Braganza that he obtained the title of Count de Vidiguera. A too common instance, this, of ingratitude, but one which it is never mal apropos to stigmatize as it deserves. Scarcely had Gama set out for Europe before the Samarine, at the instigation of the Mussulman, who saw their commercial supremacy more and more compromised, assembled his allies at Pani with the object of attacking the king of Cochin and of punishing him for the counsel and assistance which he had given to the Portuguese. The unfortunate Rajah's fidelity was now put to a hard proof. Besieged in his capital by a large force, he saw himself all at once deprived of the aid of those for whose advantage he had incurred so great a risk. Sodres and several of his captains had deserted the post, where both honor and gratitude required them to remain, and if need were to die in the discharge of their duty. They forsook Triampara to go and cruise in the neighborhood of Ormuz, and at the entrance to the Red Sea, where they calculated that the annual pilgrimage to Mecca was likely to ensure them some rich booty. The Portuguese agent vainly represented to them the unworthiness of their conduct. They set out in haste to escape from these inconvenient reproaches. The king of Cochin, betrayed by some of the Nairs, military nobles, of his palace, who had been gained over by the Samarine, soon saw his capital carried by assault, and was obliged to seek refuge upon an inaccessible rock in the little island of Viopia, with those Portuguese who had remained faithful to him. When he was reduced to the last extremity, an emissary was sent to him by the Samorine, to promise him pardon and oblivion of his offences, if he would give up to him the Portuguese. But Triampara, whose fidelity cannot be sufficiently commended, answered, that the Samarine might use his rights of victory, that he was not ignorant of the perils by which he was menaced, but that it was not in the power of any man to make him a traitor and a perjurer no one could have made a nobler return than this for the desertion and cowardice of Sodres. Vincent Sodres had arrived at the straits of Bab el-Mandeb, when a fearful tempest occurred, in which his ship split upon the rocks, and he and his brother perished. The survivors regarded this event as a judgment of providence for their bad conduct, and they made haste with all sails set to return to Cochin. They were detained by contrary winds at the Lacadive Islands, and were there joined by another Portuguese squadron under the command of Francisco d'Albuquerque, who had sailed from Lisbon almost at the same time as his cousin, Alfonso d'Albuquerque, the most distinguished captain of the period, who, with the title of Capitam Moor, had started from Belém at the beginning of April, 1503. The arrival of Francisco de Albuquerque placed the Portuguese affairs, which had been so gravely compromised by the criminal conduct of Sodres, upon a better footing, and at the same time effected the rescue of Triampara, their sole and faithful ally. 
the besiegers fled at the sight of the portuguese squadron without even a show of resistance and the europeans in conjunction with the troops of the king of cochin ravaged the malabar coast as a consequence of these events triumpara allowed his allies to construct a second fortress in his dominions and authorized an augmentation of the number and importance of their mercantile houses this was the moment that witnessed the arrival of alfonso de albuquerque the man destined to be the real creator of the portuguese empire in the indies diaz cabral and gama had prepared the way but albuquerque was the leader of large views who was needed to determine which were the principal towns that must be seized in order to place the portuguese dominion upon a solid and lasting basis thus every particular of the history of this man who showed so great a genius for colonization is of the deepest interest and it is well worth while to record some particulars of his family his education and his early exploits alfonso de albuquerque or d'albuquerque was born in fourteen fifty three at alhandra eighteen miles from lisbon through his father gonzalo d'albuquerque the lord of Villaverde, he was descended but illegitimately from king denis and through his mother from meneses the great explorers brought up at the court of alfonso v he there received as liberal and thorough an education as was possible at the period he made an especial study of the great writers of antiquity whose influence may be traced in the majesty and accuracy of his own style and of mathematics of which he knew as much as could be learnt at that time after staying for some years at arcilla an african town which was under the dominion of alfonso v he returned to portugal and was appointed master of the horse to john the second a prince whose chief anxiety was to extend the name and power of portugal beyond the seas it is evident that it was to the constant attendance upon the king imposed upon him by the duties of his office that albuquerque owed the inclination of his mind towards geographical studies and his anxious desire to find the means of giving to his country the empire of the indies he had already taken part in an expedition sent to the succor of the king of naples against an incursion of the turks and in fourteen eighty nine had been charged with the commission of revictualling and defending the fortress of graciosa upon the coast of la Rache. we must now return from this digression and take up the history of albuquerque from the time of his arrival in india in fifteen o three it took him but a few days to become thoroughly aware of the position of affairs he perceived that the commerce of portugal must depend upon conquest for its power of development but his first enterprise was proportioned to the feebleness of his resources he laid siege to raphaelim which he wished to make a military station for his countrymen and then with two ships he undertook a reconnaissance of the coast of hindostan being attacked quite unexpectedly both by land and sea he was on the point of yielding when the fortunate arrival of his cousin francisco turned the combat and put the samarine's troops to flight the importance of this victory was considerable the conquerors remained masters of an immense booty 
and quantities of precious stones, which had the result of stimulating the Portuguese spirit of covetousness. At the same time it confirmed Albuquerque in his designs, for the execution of which the consent of the king was needful, and also more considerable resources. He therefore set out on his return to Lisbon, where he arrived in July, 1504. The same year, King Emmanuel, wishing to organize a regular government in the Indies, had made Tristan da Cunha his viceroy. But da Cunha, having become temporarily blind, was obliged to resign his power before he had exercised it. The king's choice next fell upon Francisco d'Almaida, who set out with his son in 1505. It will be soon seen what were the means which he considered should be employed to assure the triumph of his countrymen. On the 6th of March, 1506, sixteen vessels left Lisbon under the command of Tristan da Cunha, who had by that time regained his health. With him went Alfonso Albuquerque, carrying with him, but unknown to himself, his patent of Viceroy of India. He was ordered not to open the sealed packet until three years should have expired, when Almeida would have completed the term of his mission. This numerous fleet, after having stopped at the Cape de Verde Islands and discovered Cape St. Augustine in Brazil, steered directly for the unexplored parts of the South Atlantic, and went so far south that the old chroniclers assert that several sailors, being too lightly clad, died from the cold while the others were scarcely able to work the ships. In 37 degrees 8 minutes south latitude, and 14 degrees 21 minutes west longitude, Dacuna discovered three small uninhabited islands, of which the largest still bears his name. A storm prevented a landing there, and so completely dispersed the fleet that the admiral could not get his vessels together again before he arrived at Mozambique. In sailing along this African coast, he explored the island of Madagascar, or San Lorenzo, which had just been discovered by Suarez, who was in command of eight vessels which Almeida was sending back to Europe. It was not thought advisable to make a settlement upon the island. End of First Part Chapter 8 Part 2A Recording by M. J. Frank Portland, Oregon.